You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. Today, we're joined by someone who I believe is a very important voice in the golf space. A reverse pioneer, if you like. In thinking about today's pod, my mind has consistently returned to the thought of Sevi Ballesteros as a boy in Pedrena on the north coast of Spain mastering the art of golf with his three iron at the beach at Somo or indeed hopping the fence of Royal Pedrena to play and practice under the light of the moon. Sandy Jemison is a Melbourne-based golf professional who at one point was the assistant coach at the Victorian Institute of Sport. He then travelled the world coaching the likes of Y.E. Yang, Robert Allenby and Jared Lyle. As family life became a focus, he moved home to Melbourne, where he held the head professional role at Commonwealth Golf Club on the Sandbelt. Slowly but surely, Sandy noticed that the golfing landscape was changing. Membership waiting lists were a thing of the past, and all but a few of the high-end venues had seen significant erosion of their memberships. Tier 2 clubs were also fighting to keep their heads above water. Add to this the fact that play at public golf facilities was heading south at an alarming rate. The game of golf was under pressure, and Sandy resolved to do something about it. In this episode, we introduce you to Sandy and his One Club project, which shines a light on what is possible when you take a breath, consider how best to introduce the wider community to the great game of golf. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Sandy. You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf podcast. Thank you, Shane. I guess it's good morning to you and good evening to me here in Australia. It certainly is. How is all in autumnal Melbourne? Oh, it's beautiful weather at the moment. We're sort of about to come out of daylight savings, but uh, the temperature here is sort of around 20 degrees for the whole of the day. It's um, just starting to get a little crisper, but it's, uh, you know, I shouldn't say that to you because you're coming out of um, Baltic weather, aren't you? No, not really. I mean, we did have a bit of frost last week, which got in the way of my tea time at, at eight minutes past eight. But it did get a 17 holes in, so that's better than nothing, I suppose. No March medal for me, unfortunately. Been We've been pretty good. Well, three or four really big storms. guess global warming is catching up with us all. Our winters seem to be getting a little bit less extreme. Good for golf, mate. Exactly. Listen, just before we get started, I wanted to commend you on your t- recent Twitter video. Really nice form on the range with that Tour Edition one iron. Uh, yeah, actually, I, I was going to put a quote up, well, maybe I am God after all, because Lee Trevino said even God... Steady, can't... steady on there, Sandy, steady on. <laughs> but no, look, I, I love I love the uh, the older golf clubs, and I picked up a set of two editions, one iron through sand iron for 90 Australian dollars in mint condition. And, wow. Um, Where'd you get that, the Oppo or somewhere like that? I was, uh, it was actually eBay. And the guy had a starting bit at 40 bucks. And I said, what's your buy now price? He said, 80. I said, I'll be round in a minute. So I drove around there and I didn't have the right change. So I tipped him 10 bucks. I'm generous. You know, there always seems to be just serious bargains to be had on eBay in, in Australia. I mean, I guess it's a bigger country than in Ireland, but any persimmon or classic blades that I ever look at are either from the UK, which obviously we got to pay duty on, or the States. There appears to be very, very little old stock of any traditional stuff in, in Ireland full stop for whatever reason. I'll sort you out at some point, mate, because uh, I tell my wife she's lucky I don't collect cars because I've got tons of the things. can't help it. I have come to that conclusion, and there is a question or two <laughs> later on on that particular topic. 
But look, maybe as a starting point to the interview, you might give us a brief introduction to set the scene, as it were, on your journey in golf to the point that you diverted from the direction that you were traveling in. Uh, look, I'll, I, will, I will make it as brief as I can because I've been a PGA member now since 1995, a full member, but worked in the industry before that. I grew up on the back of a golf course. Um, my father played golf, not very well, but he loved it. He gave me a um, cut-down club, and I used to follow him around the golf course. And then when I discovered really the golf course was closer to um, to where I lived than school, um, it tended to be a lot of – well, back in the day, we used to, to hit golf balls on the school oval, and then I'd sneak down when the golfers were finished, climb the fence to the local private golf course, hunt for golf balls. Um, most of them had stopped moving by the time I picked them up. Um, and – and um, well, it was good for your fitness if you picked up the moving ones. The golfers did chase you, and I just hit golf balls around the golf course and just fell in love with um, fell in love with the game of golf. And before I was allowed to join a private club because in Australia back when I was a kid, you had to be fourteen to join. We used to just go down to the local public golf course, and there was a um, you'd queue up. You couldn't book a tee time. We used to have a ball race. Do you ever have a ball race in Ireland? No, we used to have a if it was busy. At the at the Muni, you start to take a ticket, and they'd call your number out over the tannoy. Uh, so we put a we had like a bit of water pipe, um, which was on an angle, and you'd put the ball in one end, and when your ball got to the end of the race, it was your turn to go. Uh-huh. So you'd sort of um, mark the ball up, and you'd, you'd go down there, and we'd play golf, and it was um, it was a bit of freedom. You need to tie the buggy behind your push bike with an octopus strap. And off you go to golf. So that, that was my, that was my sort of um, my childhood really. And then they let me join the golf course a year early because I was jumping the fence and playing anyway. So they thought they better have my money. And was very lucky the the professional at the golf course was a guy called Stephen Ban. And any um, golf nerds out there, I know Stephen's probably one of the best golf coaches Australia's produced. He coached. Uh, Robert Allenby, Stuart Appleby, um, KJ Choi, a whole lot of players he coached. Um, and he was my first golf coach. So that was um, that, that, that was enjoyable. And I always wanted to be a golf coach. But towards the end of my apprenticeship, I started playing good golf. So I went off and tried to play for a bit. And um, I spent more money playing golf than I did, um, than, I, than I earned playing golf. I, I was earning my money coaching on the side. The coaching was keeping me afloat. And my accountant, who was a very good friend one year, said, listen, Sandy, what are you going to put on your tax return? What do you do for a job? And I said, well, I'm a golf pro. He said, I think you're a coach because this is what you've earned coaching and this is what you spent playing. So I um, I took that as a, as, a, as a time to retire. And he was right. It was probably one of the best things I, I did. But I then sort of pursued coaching. I coached a lot of juniors and... I grew up around a lot of good players. So I coached good players and had some success and sort of fast forward a few years, ended up being the assistant coach at the Victorian Institute of Sport, uh, where I met um, Jared Lyle. Oh, actually, that's not true. I was coaching Jared Lyle before he became in the Institute of Sport. I was coaching him um, through Challenge Cancer that looks after kids with cancer because Jared had already had leukaemia at that stage. I coached a guy called Andrew Shuden, who's now on the bag of Cameron Davis in the States. And he won three or four times in Korea and he had several wins on the Hooters Tour in America. 
and yeah, coach Jared, and then got reacquainted with Robert Allenby through at the British Open at Hoylake in um, 2006, and then started coaching Jared, um, Robert Allenby as well, and moved to London so that it was easier to coach in America because it sounds stupid that my visa in America, my wife couldn't work and my wife's in banking. So I had an ancestry visa to the UK, moved to London uh, in 2007, sub-2007. I was travelling sort of to America and back. Um, Coach Wei Yang for a stint on the European tour, although that wasn't ideal because um, my Korean wasn't as good as his English and um, he didn't like Europe at all. He hated the food. He hated the, the language barrier. But so. he preferred America. Oh, I loved America. Um, well, because there's a big Japanese culture in America. He liked Japanese food. Um, he played a lot on the Japanese tour. So it was just easier because obviously in America, it's just English. Mm. Um, whereas in Europe, you know, going if you're a Korean man going to France and you don't like, and you only like Korean or Japanese food, it's not much fun. Yeah, you're pretty goosed. Yeah, no, you are. So, so I did that. Um, and then... My family, I was spending more time with my family, but as tour coaches go, you can get sacked for after a while. So I'd put all my eggs pretty much in in one basket there for a while with Robert Allenby. And um, our relationship came to an end sort of around 2010. We moved home from London sort of around that time as well. And I moved into coaching Commonwealth Golf Club, which is one of the sandbelt clubs in Australia, a very prestigious club. And I was coaching club golfers and mainly mainly club golfers. So I did that for nine and a half years. But when I started at Commonwealth, there was a waiting list, full membership. Um, golf was sort of flying. Nine and a half years down the track, the membership wasn't full. There was obviously no waiting list. And it wasn't just Commonwealth. It wasn't that Commonwealth was a out of the ordinary, apart from about the big four clubs in Melbourne, all the clubs are in the same position. And I thought, well, I want to coach golf because I love it for another 20 years. I need to create some more customers. I I then went back and had a look at the public courses that I started at where I used to have to queue up, put my ball in the race. And there's virtually nobody there. So, you know, the Oakley golf course where I ended up, I did the stats and sort of back when I was, you know, in the boom in the, in the, in the sort of the, the mid to late nineties, they were doing 42,000 rounds of golf a year. And it was down to 17,000 rounds of golf a year, uh, which would put it in line to be closed along with, we already lost a course in Melbourne like that Elston week. And I just thought, you know what? Uh, golf's in dire straits and if I don't go and create some more customers, I might as well get out of the industry because it's uh, it's going to really struggle to support people. The guy, the game was always going to be there, just, just going, you know, in a way we had to do something different. So I guess just picking up the traditional pathway to producing golf before we step into the one club idea, you know, there's a stereotype about golf that it's expensive, it's a lease. It's moved so far away from the spirit of St. Andrews in terms of golf's a game for everybody. Well... The perception that golf's elitist and expensive, unfortunately, it's true. We, we made it that way. So when golf was booming and the clubs were all full, they put up all sorts of different hurdles to go to get to play because they could. 
But that's not, as you say, that's not how the game started. We just made it that way. And then as golf waned in popularity, we didn't make a change. So, for instance, you know, we call it the traditional way, but the traditional way is really the one club way. I call it the modern way. So from when I started my my training as a professional, but even before that, if we said when golf was booming in the 80s, very hard to get on a golf course. So the way we the way we attempt to teach people golf is on the driving range. So I even did some research um, today and I, I looked up, learn how to play golf in Dublin. And it's no different to learn how to play golf in London or Melbourne or Sydney or New York. Um, what we do is, as a profession is we sign people up to a series of lessons. So let's say it's five lessons. And in those lessons, they tell you they're going to, you're going to teach you the fundamentals. So you're going to learn how to grip, stance, posture, along all, the, all, the, all those things. And those things are important. But what I... What I identified was that it was in the wrong order. So the way I learned how to play golf, as I sort of mentioned before, my father bought me a cut-down club. And I used to hit golf balls around with that cut-down club and I used to go and play on the golf course. And the go the game of golf throws us challenges, you know, it, beautiful challenges. So I, I hit it behind a bunker. How do I hit it over the bunker? Okay, well, my cut-down club didn't do that job. So I asked the question, how do I... Well, you need a wedge. Okay. So then you buy a wedge and you get a lesson on how to use the wedge. So so I guess I just went back to how golf was. And I have in my hand here, I bought it for you. So you could you could see this. You haven't seen this oh, um, brilliant. this bit of inspiration. This is a, a cut down um, a cut down hickory club. It's called the horn medium. Um, so I assume it's about a five line. I bought this in North Berwick in 1998 or nine when I was on a trip and I went into a junk shop after playing golf and I found this cut down club and it immediately reminded me of my childhood where I had this club and I learned how to use it. And the brilliant thing is the reason I haven't got my cut down club anymore is when I finished with it, we gave it to another child. And hopefully that captain club introduced multiple um, multiple kids to the game. This um, this hickory club, I, I pick it up and I envisage uh, a, a grandparent taking a grandchild out to the shed, the garden shed, and hacksawing it down and wrapping this grip around it and then letting them follow them around the links, hopefully in North Berwick where I found it. So it just suddenly hit me that all these golf courses that are empty, these public golf courses that are empty, well, I can teach people how to play golf on the golf course with my one club. So my one club's a bit Colonel Sanders special herbs and spices. So it's effectively a cross between a long iron and a short iron. It's a short iron in length. There's not a huge amount of loft on it. It has a circle in the middle of the club face. Um, any of your listeners can look at my website, which is one club as in numeral club, one club dot golf, uh, not dot com dot golf. And there's pictures of my one club there. So, and it's got a putter grip on it. Um, I having traveled a bit, I've got some good friendship bases and Pete Cowan years ago, we, we did some lecturing with Pete Cowan with a great friend of mine, Ramsey McMaster. 
And Pete said he teaches every beginner with a putter grip on the club. And that always stuck with me. I thought, well, it's good enough for Pete. It's good enough for me. So I whacked a putter grip on this club. And what I promised, my promise with one club golf is that if you've never played golf before, within 15 minutes of coming to the golf course, I'll have you on the course playing golf. And within one hour, you'll be a good golfer guaranteed. And people fell for it. They came and they loved it. The pricing of it, we charged pretty much the same as a round of golf. So in Australian dollars, which uh, I charged $100 to do this experience. However, that was for up to four people. So a bit of a marketing ploy there. If I could find one customer and being um, Australians, they want to bargain, they'll find three friends so they're only paying $25 each. And so I made it the same cost as playing a round of golf. And then whilst there's four, four levels, if you like, to my one club, I tell them that after the first session, they need to play three rounds of golf at the golf course before they can come back for the, for the second session. And some of those people knock those three rounds off in just one week. So it was driving up participation at the golf course. Mind you, this is all pre-COVID and we can talk about after COVID um, in a while. But for the six months that I ran this before I was rudely interrupted by COVID, I had the business at Oakley Public Golf Course up 50% in players on the golf course and 50% in money in the till. And we're talking all sorts of people. So I trained up a community coach who was my, my good friend's wife, who is Chinese. She speaks Mandarin and Cantonese. She had never played golf before. And in about eight weeks, I taught her not only how to play golf with one club, but then she became an accredited instructor and started teaching the Chinese community in our area because in the city of Monash, where the golf course is located, there's 44,000 people who speak Mandarin and Cantonese at home. And so we had all of a sudden had a lot of Chinese people at the golf course who hadn't been using it before and being a municipal golf course, the um, it, it's got a responsibility to represent the community that it's in. Um, I'm just tackling the Indian community. Now we have a lot of um, people from India in the area as well and it's going gangbusters with that community. So the, I guess the, the long-winded answer is by using my pathway, and we can talk a little bit more about what I do, I make golf, as I say, easy, fun and affordable. And the big one for, for anyone listening who's got a, like, who's business-minded or who wants to, I guess, use that, that line, grow the game. Uh, I'll ask you, I'll ask everyone a question. Anyone who plays golf there, who's listening, who introduced you to the game? So Shane, who introduced you to golf? My grandfather. Yeah. And mine was my father. If you ask the majority of golfers, if everyone put their hand up, do you play golf? What I want you to do is put your hand down if a family member introduced you to the game. Well, the reality is that the vast majority of people listening, their hand is down. Only very few people took the game up without being influenced by a family member or a close friend. Yes. 
So if we really want to grow golf and make it a, a people's game again, as it was back in St Andrews, where everyone could play and it was free to play, well, we have to get non-golfing people involved in golf. And if we want kids to play, we have to get non-golfing parents to play. So the, the simple arithmetic is this. I did some snooping around in Dublin and I've done the same sort of snooping around in, um, in, in Scotland and England. Most of, the, most of the offerings for someone to get into golf are around about a hundred euros or a hundred quid for a series of lessons. It might be five lessons, it might be four lessons. It might be six lessons, depending on where you go. But let's just say it's a, it's a hundred in, in whatever do, domination you want to, you want to talk. Well, all of a sudden, if I've got um, a non-golfing family and let's, let's talk about a stereotypical unit, not that they are anymore, but let's say you've got a um, two adults in the family and two kids who don't play golf. And they're thinking, oh, we, we might go and look at playing golf. Well, they ring up the place that's advertising to teach you how to play golf. And all of a sudden, they're, they're confronted with, if I want to play, I've got four lots of lessons. So there's 400. And then I've got four lots of sets of golf clubs, which could be anything from what I find secondhand. But, uh, you know, it's, we're talking a large sum. Then four lots of great, and this is all before we even know whether we like the game or not. So what I managed to do with one club is totally get rid of that barrier, that cost barrier. So, well, not totally. The The barrier is if you can afford to play around a round of golf, you can, you can afford to learn how to play golf. And I lent them the golf club on the first session. And so for the $25, so, so this family, if we go to Dublin, we just call it, 100 euros so all of a sudden it's 100 euros includes coaching includes equipment includes their first round of golf what a bargain well it is but i'm kind of like the drug dealer who gives the first hit of crack away for free that's just it i was thinking that myself because actually you introduced them nice and gently that's then a precursor if you're you know and it's not too much information it's just a little introduction and then you say look if you're interested play your three rounds and it's as you say you're a bit like the drug dealer then because it's it's deferred knowledge because ultimately they have to come back to you to learn a little bit more yeah well yeah it is but i'd arranged a a a deal if you like where i benefited the more people played golf at the golf course i got a commission out of the green fees so i didn't like the old model and i think part of the part of the degeneration of the golf industry, if you like, golf clubs, was that all around the world, pros were being thrown out of their jobs and they were being employed by the clubs instead of running their own businesses. So now pros, the only way they could make money was to sell their skills on an hourly basis. If that's club fitting, sell a set of golf clubs, you make money, otherwise you don't uh, commission. But coaching, all of a sudden, the only way we made money is coaching is to give more lessons. So we focused on that and the industry actually didn't, oh, I haven't seen one yet, didn't give us any incentive to create new golfers. You know, that most clubs were happy or facilities were happy taking, you know, a percentage off the pros for them to fix 18 handicappers slices. So what I sort of created was, okay, well, if I make your business busier, 
um, I should benefit from that. And if I give one lesson and that person all of a sudden plays four times the next week, I should benefit. And that, and that happened quite a lot because it's a very addictive game. And again, on that website I gave before, oneclub.golf, you can watch the video of the first lesson, exactly what happens. But when I teach other coaches to do it, and this is the silly thing, I, I believe golf is a very simple game. We want to hit the ball somewhere near the middle of the club face with that pointing at our target at approximately the right speed. And you can play golf. So when I'm teaching other coaches, I say everyone who comes to our lessons, we need to assume, A, they got themselves there so they're not stupid um, and they can already play golf. One of the things that I say, there's no golf coaches at mini golf. So... Everyone can wield a putter um, and get around a mini golf course, hitting the ball somewhere near the club face with a small swing. And indeed, when I start my lessons, I start them on the putting green with my one club and I put the ball a foot away from the hole. The grip's easy, thumbs on top, hands close together. They don't have to think about that. In the middle of the club face, there's a circle. I so say we aim the circle at the ball and then align it to our target, get comfortable and then try and hit it in the hole, guess. And of course they all do. And then we putt around the putting green for five minutes tops. I slowly let them go putt to one further away. And then I make the blanket statement every time, well, you lot are ready for the golf course, let's go. And I march them straight down to the first tee. We get on the first tee, I have a sand bucket because we fill our divots in Australia with sand. I know in the UK, in different places sometimes you just replace, but we carry stand with us. And I explain everywhere except for the putting green in order to hit a decent shot, the club needs to touch the ground. And I show them that to get the ball in the circle, the club's touching it. We may need to fix a divot. I then get them standing in a safe place. I explain the safety. I then say, okay, we're going to play and we're going to use a swing only a little bit bigger than what you did on the putting green. And if that is, um, if you miss it, I want you to make a smaller swing and we're just going to get the ball moving. So if you like the first hole of one club golf, looks a little bit like field hockey. They might be dribbling the ball down there. Some of them might hit at five metres, some hit at 10 metres. And if the ball goes forward, I say, great shot. And I never problem solve. So I never, if they miss it, I never tell them, I never give them any sort of assistance as to why. I say, have another go. Or if they keep missing it, go smaller. That's it. And they figure it out for themselves. And they start they start getting down the fairway because we're only hitting small shots. We follow the group immediately in front of it. I love teaching this in amongst a full field of golfers. Um, and we always finish the first hole off. At my course, it's a 330-meter par four, which they might have 20 or 30 shots, but they're moving straight directly behind the group in front who sometimes look a bit concerned because they have these loonies chasing them with one club and a ball. <laughs> uh, but, but that's okay. Um, the second hole at my golf course is a par three. And what I do is I say, okay, I'm going to find out what, a, what sort of a job I've done on the first. Do you know when it's your turn to play? Can you stand safely? Can you do this all by yourself? The par three is a little over a hundred meters. 
And before they hit, I turn the stopwatch on without them knowing. We go down the hole. I help them coach themselves, like whose shot is it, what's going on. I'll ask somebody about um, what they do for a job, how many kids they've got, or the kids, what they're doing at school. I'll purposely have conversations outside of golf. We finish the hole. I turn the stopwatch off. I walk them off the back of the green, and I say, I was timing you. And the reason I was timing you is the business of golf and the way we can make golf so everyone can enjoy it and we can afford to maintain is every eight minutes, another group can hit off. And the hole you just played, only one group can fit on it at a time and I explain what a par three is. So that means if you take longer than eight minutes to play that hole, you're going to cause a backup, which is going to inconvenience someone else who's booked a game of golf. And so effectively, if you can play safely at the speed that allows everyone else to play within your existing ability, look after the golf course and be good company. You're welcome on any golf course at any time. And then I asked them how long they thought they took. Most of them are sort of 10, 12 minutes. The longest it's taken a group of four to play the second hole at Oakley with me is six and a half minutes. And all of a sudden, every single one of them smiles and we I just empower them to do it. And effectively, I play, I go with them for maybe another two or three holes. They have me for an hour and I'm constantly quizzing them on the, on the keys of being a good golfer, which is safety, speed of play, understanding your existing level of skill, course care and being good company, not just to the people you're playing with, but the other people on the course talking to people. And usually by about the fifth hole or the sixth hole, I say, okay, what, what are the things we've got to do? Yeah, okay, good. Well, I'm leaving you here to finish these holes off by yourself. Just follow the path behind the greens to the next hole. I know what time you should finish. You're all great. You remember the first time you drove a car by yourself, how good it felt? I'll see you when you finish. And I walk off and I meet them when they finish. And over 600 golfers have gone through now and haven't had a single failure. I understand you manufactured the first clubs yourself. How difficult was that? And was it difficult ultimately to, to find a supplier that would manufacture the one club for you? Yeah, look, that's been interesting. So I used a company in Australia who made component clubs. And the whole ethos of my one club golf is easy, fun and affordable. So I re-engineered an existing club. They had changed the lie angle on it, got rid of the number off the bottom. Um and really what I had to do is I had to buy a minimum quantity of club heads. So the first order was 700. And that club retails in Australian dollars for 49.95. So it's probably about 35 euros or somewhere thereabouts, which is the only cost to get started. Look, I, I, I really don't want to be a golf club manufacturer. I've, I've spoken to a few of the, um, original equipment manufacturers and they all love the idea but unfortunately in the current market since COVID hit they can't keep up with supplying 500 quid drivers and that's where they make all their money and they're answerable to the shareholders and it's funny it, it drives me crazy a little bit because the the thing I hear back is look we've got a responsibility to our shareholders to be as profitable as, uh, as possible and I get that and it's not our place to grow the game of golf. 
that's the job of the RNA and the USGA and these other people, right? And I'm going, but guys, surely producing a golf club with your logo on it and then having the information is that my plan is always to have this on an app um, when I get the money to do it where we can track what the golfers are doing. We gamify learning. And, you know, if it was, uh, we won't name manufacturer, but one of the big manufacturers, we could know that um, Shane Darby's Darby taking up golf and and he's played 20 rounds of golf in three weeks. And he's we can now start to track what he's doing and we can prompt him and say, hey, Shane, you're playing a lot of golf. You're ready for an upgrade. If you bring your club back to us, we'll give you 100% trade in on your first package set of golf clubs. Uh, and they've got that pathway. And I can tell you when people get hooked on golf, as you know, money, money becomes less than an object. So I've collected a lot of, lot of data on what I'm doing. And I can tell you that the average woman who takes up golf with a one club within eight months, she's bought, a set of golf clubs to the value of 1400 Australian dollars. And then there's add-ons. The average bloke has spent $1,800. So obviously guys just splurge more money on themselves. But typically, and that's accounting for the ones who spent less on a secondhand set and accounting for the ones who went and bought top of the range straight away. But typically when someone takes up golf, if we go back to that family that I was sort of talking about who were thinking about playing golf. And even if they went past and they spent the 400 on the lessons, they're typically going to buy the cheapest golf clubs they can just to, just to get a start. Whereas the beauty with one club is the people have already played usually, you know, 15, 20 rounds of golf before they buy a set of golf clubs. So they've already formed a habit of playing golf and they've already decided that golf is going to be part of their life. So they're happy to spend more money on their first set of golf clubs because they know it's part of their life. So that's I see that as the benefit for a manufacturer. Um, I can't see us getting a manufacturer on board now for some time because they're still having trouble supplying the the bubble of people who've come into the game during COVID. I'm just interested to know, you know when you were developing this idea, did any of your PGA peers think you'd lost it? Oh, totally. I had, um, I'll still get a few, but when I left Commonwealth um, after being there for nine and a half years, and I had a really good job there. I loved the club, but everyone just assumed I must have been sacked. I think they were looking for the back pages of a paper to see whether they've been involved in some sexual act or something, but no, um, I left of my own goodwill. And, and even now it's, it's kind of bizarre because I think people have just got used to doing things the way they've done them for so long that it's their comfort zone. And I, and I understand that. And I'm no threat, which I will, I will um, explain. So I did a survey when I was, when I was thinking of doing this, I'm on multiple forums on, um, on Facebook and well, mainly Facebook. There's a whole lot of coaches forums on there. Um, and I also exist on Twitter. Um, and I've asked the similar questions before, but I've got over 400 golf professionals and I asked them questions like, did you have lessons before you played on a golf course for the first time? And then did you have a full set of golf clubs? Um, if so, or if not, how many clubs did you have? What were they? 
and in over in over 400 people, I only had five golf professionals who'd, who'd had lessons before they played on golf course. And there was only half a dozen or so who had a full set of golf clubs and every single one of them, they were hand-me-down clubs. The vast majority of us started with one or two clubs. So if you went by that, I don't know, it's not a scientific study, but if you went by that, you could comfortably say that maybe the way to start golf is just to start playing golf because it seems to work for 400 golf professionals. Most amateur golfers would love to think they could become as good as a golf professional. Where I'm no threat and, and I'll explain that. So I think a lot of my fellow PGA pros are thinking, oh, Sandy's saying that you don't need lessons. What we're doing is not important. Well, that's not true. I'm just saying we need to get people hooked on the game first. So I feel like I'm creating, to use the, the kitsch marketing phrase, I'm creating a big funnel. And I'm trying to get as many people into the game and hooked as possible. And then the very first thing I do when they've done through my four things is I refer them elsewhere to get technical lessons if they want to improve their golf swing and if they need to. I don't do any of that anymore at all, except for friends, family, or people I've coached for a long time. And the, the big benefit out there, if you have PGA members listening to you or anyone out there listening knows a PGA member, the benefit is you get motivated customers. So as I said before, you, the golf course throws up challenges. Like I, I use the example of me, I had to hit it over a bunker while I needed a wedge. So every um, beginner pathway program that exists now in the in the multiple lesson facet it will have a clinic on pitching with a wedge so guess what hey you know shane yeah you, you're playing golf that's great you want to know how to pitch well i've got these five lessons set up that's going to go over putting with a putter because you're not using one at the moment using the one club it's going to go over chipping and pitching with a wedge it's going to go over using a wood it's going to so the, the lessons that are already available are very good and PGA professionals are more qualified than they've ever been to help golfers. It's just I think we need to shift. We need to make them golfers first and then help them get better. Yeah, I'm interested to hear how the wider golf world or the golf nerds out there have responded to the one club idea. I mean, obviously, hand up, I'm one of those golf nerds. So uh, uh, I was fortunate to make your acquaintance through Rod Murray and Adrian Logue, but I'm, I'm assuming you've had some interesting Twitter discussions or indeed WhatsApp messaging from the wider golfing world. Look, it goes one of two ways, and I'm quite happy for that. A lot of existing golfers, like I've had people at the golf course throwing their arms up saying, this is ridiculous, they're not even playing properly. Like, as if there's a proper way to play golf and it involves 14 clubs and a rangefinder. Um, you know, last time I checked, there was no, there's a maximum amount of clubs you can carry, but there's no minimum. So there are other, there are other people who don't get that. And they're people who are well entrenched in how they were taught, which was through a multitude of tips and advice and lots and lots of lessons before they even went on the golf course. But the overwhelming response has been, ah, that makes sense. So I can play with just one club. And what I say to people all the time is 
and every golfer listening to this will know this, you've got a set of golf clubs in your bag, but unless you hit the club in the middle of the club face, it doesn't behave the way it was designed. So I hit a seven iron and I hit it thin. It doesn't go far enough. I hit it fat. It doesn't go far. So if I can't hit one club regularly in the middle of the club face or close to it, what's the point in having a whole bag of clubs? And the other question that I'd ask people, and no one has to confess to this, and you don't even have to put your hand up, although I know you're quite a good player. So many players out there don't use anywhere near all the clubs in their bag. Like I, my wife's, uh, you know, a, a low 30 handicap golfer. She's sort of just re- starting playing re- recently. And um, she uses about four clubs in a bag. And and that's great because unless you're hitting, as you say, unless, you, unless you're making good enough contact all the time, most, most golfers can't really predict the difference between a seven and a six iron or even a seven and a five iron. They might think they can, but, you know, they, they can't until you hit it, you know, regularly pretty well. Just looking towards the future, Sandy, I'm sort of minded to talk about community outreach. School seems like a possibility. Obviously, you're doing community-based programs in terms of the Mandarin community and the Indian community already in, in, in Melbourne. It would strike me that there has to be overseas interest in relation to this and I guess looking at nurturing the game as opposed to growing the game uh, growing the game tends to suggest lining one's pockets nurturing the game is completely different in terms of actually distilling it down to you know that, that primal nature and I heard you speak about the, the the champagne cork and the people running around lynxes in in Scotland in the 17th and 18th century with, with champagne corks and it's really trying to I guess chase after that again in terms of of the the joy of being outside and and enjoying the walk and enjoying the experience. Yeah, look, I'm very passionate about the golf game for everyone, and one 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 program that I run that I'm extremely proud of. We have um, a group called Reach and Belong, who's a disability support service, and we've got people with disability that we're not only taught how to play golf, but we've got them as accredited community instructors. And they get paid to deliver one club to other people with disabilities. So a lot of the uh, coaches we have, they're on the autism spectrum and they make great golf coaches and they can, uh, we've got a group of 20 every Saturday to go to Oakley and play golf and then catch up and have lunch. So golf is truly a game for everybody. As for interest outside of um, Australia, I had a huge amount before the pandemic came in. So before COVID hit, I think there wasn't, there were very few golf facilities in the world that weren't scratching their heads thinking about how to to get more people on the golf course and they got wind of one club and I my um my my every form of communication went crazy. I just didn't have enough equipment to supply people. But then when COVID hit and the golf courses got busy, all of a sudden they forgot all the um all their issues and the model they've been running for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years they thought was okay again. Um, that is starting, I am starting to talk to people. I was speaking to uh, a woman in the UK yesterday. Um, she, she's a she's at the golf club with Billy Foster, which is quite amazing. So the, the wonderful caddy, Billy Foster is a member there. She said he's our most famous member. Well, Billy would be an ideal person to talk about one club since he caddied for Sebi. 
So there, there is that really my way forward now is I know it works. I've got proof of concept. What I need, I need um, the golf bodies to get on board. So Golf Australia has been great and the Australian PGA has been great. Um, ideally, the RNA, and I have had a few preliminary discussions um, with a couple of people at the RNA, and we're talking about uh, hopefully some stuff happening. So I, I would really love to get, I'd really love to get to the UK. It's a, it's a lot my second home, and just because that's where it all started. That's where this that's where this hickory um, cut down hickory club is. I'm really just. I'm really just, um, I'm not reinventing the wheel. It's like the wheel's been hidden in the cave for for 40 years and I've just dragged it out again and say, hey, remember this old, um, remember this old thing. You know, I, I was speaking with a friend of mine in the golf club there at the weekend and he was lamenting the fact that we don't talk about golf anymore in the golf club. That kind of got me thinking and it's probably true. The language of today is very much they, not us, them, not we from a, from a golf perspective. And I guess society as a whole appears to be a little bit more self-centered and dare I say it's selfish and inward looking. We seem to lost that sense of outreach or community that may have been m more prevalent previously. If you agree with what I've just said, how do you think that impacts in the wider golfing landscape? Oh, I totally agree with what you just said, but I think that it, it was born from when golf was absolutely booming and you couldn't get into golf clubs. So, you know, they put fences up and it became like a, a secret society and they didn't engage in the community. And I think golf clubs have, all, all people in golf have to remember that whilst it might be a private club, I know, I'm not sure how it works in Ireland. I know a lot of the private clubs in the UK are still on crown land and people can wander across them. Um, played a bit in Ireland. I haven't seen too many people wander across the courses there, but... No, generally speaking, the courses, mostly the courses in Ireland would be private property. So you're right, gates and fences and, my God, somebody's trespassing. Yeah, and my my issue with that, and I might have people, depending on what time they're listening to this podcast, they might spit their cup of tea out or their scotch, whatever, whatever time of the day it was, or it could be both if you're a hardy person. But um, is it even though your golf club may be on private property, um, your golf club does not pay taxes based on the same rate that I would if I owned a piece of land next door to it because it's there for recreation is usually how the zoning works. Um, and if that's recreation for only a few who pay a lot of money to do it, well, you want to be careful because uh, it's just happened here in Australia, a golf course, Cranbourne, where they're playing the um, Australian Amateur, in about four years is going to cease to exist because the the taxes got put up to $1.6 million a year. And um, they've amalgamated with Huntingdale Golf Club and Cranbourne will become houses. So um, we don't want that because golf should really truly should be a sport for everybody. And I understand a private golf club, people pay a lot to maintain them. But there's certainly ways that all levels of golf can get involved in the community. So even if that is the most exclusive private golf course in a city, helping out a municipal golf course with uh, assistance when it comes to matters of um, looking after the grounds or if something goes wrong, pitching in and helping out. 
to show that they're actually nurturing the game, I think that's really important. So I'm certainly not saying private golf clubs should close. I just think all golf needs to look at ways to 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 help everyone else out to get more people playing, nurturing the game, as you say. No, one hundred percent. And look, a Henry Ford quote comes to mind, which sort of echoes something you said previously there. If you always do what you always did, then you always get what you always got. I think that sort of sums up the, I guess some would call it traditional, others would call it myopic. Let's just say people get stuck in a rut in terms of doing what they've always done and it's comfortable and sure nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. I think leadership, obviously in terms of the sustainability in the game is very important you know looking outside the the box as it were or looking outside the norm as to what we've always done i mean i would question and i think there is a growing appetite in terms of changing how changing golf should i say so that it's a little bit less introspective a little bit less of an echo chamber um but I really just wonder if there's an appetite to lead development of the game. And I really hope there is through programs like One Club and simplifying things and actually distilling down the commercialization from the actual game itself. Yeah, I think we just have to remember that all everyone out there who's got the full bag of clubs and the range finder and, and all the palaver, at the at the essence of it it's a very simple game i heard um andrew thompson peter thompson's son saying that um his dad used to say that um it's a very natural thing to hit a stone with a stick you know people have been doing it for well, for, for multiple centuries because they've been playing golf for centuries but I, I talk about hurdles and and one vision i put up is this let's just go imagine imagine um because have football crowds the sporting crowds in Ireland, um, so pre-pandemic, I know in Australia, for instance, the AFL, the crowds over the 25 or 28 years that it was that golf numbers were going down, the crowds were building. People going to the football was building. Um, and I, I get really upset when people say, oh, people haven't got time to play golf anymore. They haven't got the money to play golf. They're all just excuses in my mind, because if I use the, the, um, the football as an example, let's just, let's just fly across a, a, a waterway from you and we'll go to Wembley stadium. And, uh, let's say there's going to be a, um, a football match on and we'll say who's home grounds Wembley. I, I don't even know. I know West Ham play at the old Olympic stadium. I don't think there's any home team as it were, but let, let's say, let's say Chelsea is going to play Man City and they're going to play it. Uh, at uh, at Wembley Stadium, and obviously price isn't an issue because people pay money. They're going to fill the stadium to watch that game. But as the crowds are converging on Wembley Stadium, a hundred yards out, they put a big rope and a barrier around it, and we won't even go to the dress regulations, and we won't talk about what you have to wear. But and they, you and I are wandering up there, up to there, and we get to the barrier, and they say, oh. Shane and Sandy, oh, well, you know, welcome, welcome to the football. Now, you're more than welcome to come in, but first, before you come in, you've got to pass a skills test. You've got to show us you can dribble the ball. You've got to show us you can pass it. You've got to show us you can hit a, you can hit a header, 
and you've got to show us you can take a free kick. And if you can't do that, we'll sign you up to five weeks of lessons to show you you can do it before you can go and watch the football. <laughs> well, this football crowds would be way down, not because of money, but because of the hurdles we put in the way. And that's what we've done to golf. We've, we've, that's, that's clearly what we've done to golf. You want to play golf? Yeah, before you play golf, these are the things you have to do. Not here's a stick, here's a ball, hit it. And by the way, do it safely at a speed that everyone else can do it. And if you keep missing it, for goodness sake, mate, use a swing that you can hit it so the game can keep moving. And look after the golf course. It's not hard. Really not hard. But, you know, golf's just, I, I suppose when it was busy, it filled itself through full of barriers. And one of my fears from COVID is the influx of people coming in had stopped the desire to innovate. But certainly in Australia, I'm seeing golf numbers dropping again at the public facilities. The private clubs are okay at the moment. Um, my local club had over 100 people didn't renew their fees. Um, they'll have people to replace a lot of those. But as things open up and people can keep doing things, you know, other things again, going to the football, playing community sport, I think you'll find unless golf is willing to change, and I know through talking to people at Golf Australia and the RNA, they do want to change. They, they realise the they need to change. I just don't think... Um, I, I just don't think they flipped it on the head. I think, as your, as your quote said, they're just relying on the five one-hour lessons. They're relying on that hurdle again um, and stopping people getting into the game of golf. But I think it's across the board. I mean, if you look at you look at even the the high end clubs, and you would wonder if and, and let's say they lose some members, do they actually do uh, an exit survey with with members that are leaving? Why are you leaving? I mean, Mackenzie obviously speaks of course design in his Spirit of St Andrews book, and he says, well, you know, some of the reason that people leave golf is because the course is bloody boring. At the same token, you know. Everybody has a soft spot for their particular mud heap, as he would say. But, I mean, change in golf is at best glacial. And, and, and I appreciate that. That, sort of, that feeds back into that Henry Ford quotation that ignorance is not an excuse. You know, one needs to open one's eyes and, and look beyond your frame of reference and where your friends play and actually outside of the country and maybe best practice isn't even particularly in the golf industry maybe it's somewhere else maybe it's the gym industry or it's something else depending on what the issues are and really try and accentuate and understand that yes everybody's coming from a different a different place but change unfortunately if you're not changing you're going backwards yeah absolutely so two things i had um I six friends who have been members at a private golf club for more than 10 years. They all resigned this year and um, for a few different reasons. And they didn't even get in. No one from the club rang them up to ask them why. There was no exit survey. Um, as for change, I think we're at a really exciting crossroads in the game. So one thing COVID showed us is we could change really quickly. I don't know what it's like in Ireland, but there's no scorecards. Same as, yeah, same as. No scorecards anymore. I mean, you know, people being, it was only 
you know, it's only back in, if you said February, um, February 2020, you'd be disqualified if you didn't sign your scorecard. Now nobody signs a scorecard. Like, that's changed. And that, that, that was a rule that had been going for hundreds of years, probably, as long as they've been playing stroke or stable for the play. That changed rapidly. The way um, the way we went to our golf clubs to play, all of a sudden that changed. So we can change. And what's coming up with the equipment, um, there's going to be some, from what I understand, there's going to be some lines drawn in the sand. There's some hopefully. great changes there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hopefully. Um, that, so that change is coming in. So I think I think times I think it's a good time to make changes and wholesale changes and you know if I can I mean look there might be something out there better than my one club I'm biased everyone loves their baby but as I say now well over six hundred people have come through and everybody's gone away enjoying it and being a golfer within an hour so I know I can offer that and I would love nothing more than to have a platform to. To, to, to shape the industry up a bit in a good way. Everyone's, everyone can win, and I'm, I'm happy to stand up there and sort of make my case. You know, you were wielding that cut-down hickory club there a few moments ago. Um, I know what it represents and means to you. And as an old-school club pro, I'm pretty sure that you have a pretty unique skill set with regard to restoring old-school persimmon woods and blade-style irons like those uh, tour editions you were talking about earlier. Is this fascination something you've always had or something that's come to you later in life? Yeah, good point. Look, when I did my um, my traineeship, as it was called back in the day, it was metal woods were just coming in um, or they'd, they'd been in for a little while, but let's face it, the early metal woods... Um, and don't, yeah, well, yeah. And there were no better <laughs> persimmons. And there was that argument. I know Freddie Couples kept using a persimmon for a long time. And funny, the set of traditions I had came with um, the metal woods, which were the option back then, but you could also get the persimmons. And don't tell my wife, but I went round to Ross Baker's place. If not, people listen to follow Ross Baker on um, on Twitter. He still makes golf clubs out of a, a, a trunk of tree and makes putters. And he's an amazing hickory guy. But he had the matching persimmon woods for my set. So I went round there today and I spent a few dollars picking those up you'd have to it would be rude otherwise yeah look i tell you what just what hit me what i've been saying for a while um is when i started i started with a cut down club and then i gradually built my set and my set were not matching and then i went to work in the pro shop cleaning clubs and every saturday i earned ten dollars for cleaning the golf clubs the there happened to be two clubs in my bag that were Pro Simon V2s, which were still in production. And they were $27 a club. So every three weeks, I added a club and built a set of golf clubs. And that's what I played with. But my fascination with the persimmon woods and the blades is I'm acquiring all the golf clubs that when I was a kid, I looked up towards that I could never dream of affording. So I'm buying all the toys that I couldn't have when I was a kid. And in some ways, I'm going to sound really old now, 
but in some ways I lament the fact the way I learned how to play golf seems to have disappeared. And I see the kids turning up for a golf lesson when I was coaching at the high-end private golf club. And they have the top of the range golf clubs when they're 14. You know, I had a kid turn up who had a, he was like 12 and he's coming for lessons during the summer and his parents had bought him the brand new set of Mizunos with titanium woods. He's a beginner. And, and so, yeah, so I think, I think these days you feel you can buy a game of golf, whereas the, um, the wooden wood days, well, I'm not saying we go back to it, although that's all I tend to play with. Um, you bought a driver and you looked after it because there was nothing much better on the market. Whereas now we're being told we're being sold a game. And um, unfortunately, even though whilst I'd like some of those manufacturers to come on board with me, a lot of those, um, a lot of those sales pitches um, haven't helped the average golfer too much. You mean the carbon titanium hoofer doofer face won't work and it won't add five yards to my game overnight? Huh? Look, I, I think they're, they're, they're selling hope, mate. They're selling hope. That's all. Do you know? I, I would say it really, really helps um, the, the the high handicap golfer, the oversized driver. So back when I was hitting the persimmon woods, if you couldn't hit it in the sweet spot. Um, it didn't go anywhere. So you get a person who shoots 100, 120, 95, and the, the big titanium woods help them. I'm not saying the latest one. You get a 10-year-old one, it'll help them a lot compared to the old gear. The What I'm seeing with the, you know, the, the, tw the, the, 20, the below 20 market to about a, a four handicap, the latest driver doesn't do anything better for them than the driver from the year before. But the pros get a big benefit out of it. But you know, it's funny. I recall seeing an article on a website, a US website, I think it's Golf WRX, and they put uh, Titleist 2005 on the Iron Byron versus a Titleist 2019. And there was no difference. None whatsoever. Now, to be fair, the face was probably a little bit more forgiving on the 2019 versus 2005. But there's something in that, you know? Well, the other, look, the other thing that goes with this, and look, if, you're listen, if someone's listening to this podcast and they've just spent, you know, 3,000 US dollars on the latest set of golf clubs, that, that, I've got no issue with that. If you like shiny new things and you can afford it, it makes you feel good. I, I have no issue. However, I went out and played with my tour editions um, that I bought on Sunday afternoon. I took a half set. I took one iron, three iron, five iron, seven iron, nine iron, sand iron, and I took a, a three wood out with me. I only played six holes. I hit five greens in regulation and shot a couple under. And the golf ball didn't know these clubs were from the 80s. Uh, when you hit them well, they go as good as anything. And I think maybe there's some, some people are a bit threatened there. I mean, the, the one club that I've, that I've got my, my, we call it the smart club, my business partners, if we've got to call it something better than just the one club. So it's called the smart club, everyone. Um, it might be threatening because here's a club that sells for, you know, 
um, 49 Australian dollars, which is about 29 quid, which is whatever it is in euros, maybe 35 euros. And I've had Robert Allenby, who I used to coach, hit it. And he says it feels fantastic. That's a, that's, that's a under $50 golf club as opposed to an over $200 golf club. It, it feels great. So maybe there's maybe maybe some people are threatened there, but I think golf's a simple game. No, mate, it is. It's a simple game made difficult by idiots like me, and with the greatest respect, other idiots like me. <laughs> you know, I'll give I'll give it, I'll give everyone here, uh, everyone here. I, I hate doing swing tips. I don't do tips and and lessons because I don't problem solve for people. But. My, the, the third point in what I do to be, where I teach people to become a good golfer is universal from a beginner through to the best player in the world, barring late Friday afternoon or late Sunday afternoon. And so I, when I say learning to play within your level of skill or your existing skill level, so if that means for a beginner golfer, they only hit the golf ball when they swing it knee high to knee high, okay, play with that and gradually build on it until you know that that's what you can do, play with it. Or if that be coaching Robert Allenby or Wei Yang or Jared Lyle, the tour players are the most conservative bunch of people on the planet. They these days have statisticians telling them what they how to play the game of golf. They don't take risks. They don't hit shots that they don't know they can pull off at a high percentage of the time. And the stats, they're, they're sort of looking at about a 70% rate is what they want to to feel they're going to pull off successfully. The only time they ever take that risk is late Friday night if they think they're going to miss the cut. They'll push hard to try and make some birdies to make the cut and they might hit some shots that get them into trouble. Or Sunday afternoon if there's a chance of winning the tournament, but they have to take some risks. But apart from that, they never take a risk. So most club golfers, they don't have a good understanding of what their skill level is or they're not willing to accept what it is. Um, and you can find that out easily by hitting shots and seeing what percentage of them come out of the club face and go where you want them to go. And seven out of ten is a good rate. Most club golfers live in la-la land. They're, they're going for the, the one in a hundred shot all the time. And then when they don't pull it off, they get upset. So that's that'd be my, my advice to everyone is find out what you can do and play within it and gradually build on it. And just to build on that, I mean, I, I recall Tiger Woods speaking about just what you're speaking about there and he said that he was from a going at greens perspective aggressively conservative and he just plays the stock shot and and if he has to push he pushes i guess the, the other side of it is there's an honesty required to actually adopt that approach that you're talking about and objectivity and knowing what your skill set is and actually it's more enjoyable and and, and also it doesn't matter because you know, we're going to hit bad shots. We're not professionals. So the bar that you're setting for yourself may be a little bit too high. And as a result, you're pulling your hair out for no particular reason because ultimately put your attention on, on what is useful for the next shot as opposed to worrying about what's going to happen or what did happen or what you did here the last time. Well, yeah, you're right. Look, a blanket statement here, and uh, this may, may not be true if someone's on the golf course with personal problems or what have you, but... When you look on the golf course and you see people getting angry after hitting bad shots or frustrated, that's a person. And if that's you, 
that's a person who's got unrealistic expectations about their ability. They're, they're really not as good as they think they are. And when they don't live up to their own expectations, they get the shits. So, you know, just realise that you're not your handicap. No, no, it's meant to be a pastime and it's meant to be fun, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> go around with a smile on your face and eyes up and, Jesus, you might hit some good shots. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and that's what, what, what I'm, you know, my fun club golf, it's easy, fun, affordable. The fun word is there all the time. And I'm saying uh, it's always, you've got to be having fun. Like, mm-hmm. It's okay. I teach. I teach them that they've got to be enjoying it. And when they see people out in the golf course who aren't having fun, because it's not hard to find them, you just say, "Hey, listen. You know, they need to sort of reevaluate what they're doing out here." As a proud Melbourneian, Sandy, and a Box Hill boy, what does the Melbourne Sun Belt mean to you? Oh, look, it was always aspirational for me because Box Hill, um, Box Hill is, whilst whilst it is my home, it is my mud heap. Because it is a mud heap. I was. It's much better these days. But it was a clay course. Um, but I did get to play the sandbelt quite a lot. Admittedly, jumping the fences late at night at times. But um, that's another story for another day. I'm very proud. I'm very proud of the Melbourne sandbelt. I mean, I've been lucky enough to play a lot of golf courses around the world, and it's as fine a collection of golf courses as you'll find anywhere in in a concentrated place. It's it's one of the reasons I. Th- think that our top players are so good even the ones who don't come from melbourne the ones from queensland and new south wales they get to come to melbourne and play on our courses for big events and you have to you have to be strategic about it you have to hit good shots you have to hit quality shots and um yeah we're very fortunate to have the collection of courses here so um, I, I love it yeah i can't wait to get back down i'm, I'm hoping later this year or early next my one and only visit to Melbourne. I did not get Royal Melbourne in. That has to be rectified. Um, yeah, we we can sort that out for you. Thank you. Well, so and it's it's funny. The more I do this, the more I the more I get to know people with with tentacles in different places. So let's just put it this way: I don't think I'll be without some invites in Melbourne. Clates has already suggested a slap in, in Metro at least. So and Ross Flanagan in uh, in Peninsula Kingswood. So I, I I should be okay for a couple of invites. Thankfully. Look at the last couple of questions, Sandy, and you probably know I asked the same final questions to all of my guests. Uh, first one being bucket list golf. You might tell listeners five courses that you'd like to return to or see for the very first time and why you have chosen them. All right. So very fortunate to have been to a lot of places. Um, actually, Ireland drives me crazy. Because every time I go to Ireland, I was, I was there on a junket a few years ago. Um, thank you to the Irish Tourist Board. Um, and we went up we went up the northwest coast um, from Doonbeg and we went all the way up and played Royal Port Rush. But you drive past you drive past as many good golf courses. I, I kept looking on the map and we're driving past these courses I wanted to go and play. So Rossapenna, I'd love to go to Rossapenna. Um, cracking golf course. I, I haven't... Um, I even loved. Um, I I've been to Ireland a few times. Little golf course, Ross Lair. Yeah, Ross, Ross Lair, then 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 the southeast, yeah. Yeah, sorry, it's not really near anything of of any note. I mean, the European Club would probably be the nearest 
Yeah, I, I drove I drove past that one, unfortunately. But it's kind of down the, the southeast corner. If you're getting a, a ferry to Ross Laird, a fish guard, which is in Wales, you, you sort of pass it by. There's a couple of members, actually, in Royal Dublin, my home my home club, that are, are dual members down there. It's the sunny southeast of Ireland. They, they grow a lot of strawberries down there during the summer, and it's bouncy bounce golf when it gets uh, gets gets firm and fast, big time down there. But it's a it's a really nice golf course. Yeah, look, that was great fun. I um, here's one that no one will be expecting, a little nine hole golf course in Scotland that means a lot to me because my late mate learned how to play golf there, is uh, Bridge of Allen. It's um. Look it up if you're ever going there. It's a it's just a wee nine hole golf course up on top of a massive big hill. You need one leg longer than the other. The views are spectacular out towards the Wally Monument and Stirling Castle. Uh, so I, I walk around it regularly. Uh, it's a when I'm when I'm over there because I, I stay just down the road. Um, it's great fun. Love to go to Macrahenish. Uh, I haven't been there, and um, I've probably been a bit greedy. But if I had to pick one in America, I've been to a lot of courses over there just as a as a coach but i'd love to go to the national golf links GLA, yeah it's funny I, i've i've got a i don't know if you recall there was two kiwis that did a round the world trip back in 2010 michael goldstein and jamie Patton, and i've teed michael up as a guest for a podcast in a couple of weeks time but they had i'm, I'm just going back through old blog posts and stuff like that and those two gentlemen uh, as I said, they played a round of golf every day for 365 days and travelled around the world. But they had a day on Long Island where they played Shinnecock in the morning and played NGLA in the afternoon. Can you believe that day? Jesus. Great day. I've, yeah, no, it would be good. I've, I've, look, I've seen, because they're just across the fence, so I caddied in the 2004 US Open at Shinnecock for Andrew Shuden, the guy who's on the bag of Cameron Davis now. So I have fond memories there. That's when Goosen won that, didn't he? He did. Um, Put the lights out, if I recall. Yeah, no, yeah, they were they were watering greens in them and then people cracking it. But look, I, I, um, my heart is on the Lynx Golf in um, Scotland and Ireland. I um, another course I was really taken with the. I don't think people talk. Enniscrone. 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 Absolutely stunning. It's. Oh, it's just, and the letter in the locker room in the men's locker room about the. Um, there's a letter there that was written by a guy to the club and he was basically basically these guys were from from Scotland and they came and played Enniscrone every year because they felt that's how golf used to be in Scotland and this was some time ago so yeah I, I love it um uh Michelle Holmes who's a who's from there an Irish woman who coaches in America she puts a bit on Twitter so follow Michelle Holmes you'll see a bit of Enniscrone she's a big kids coach isn't she yeah she's great but that's. I mean, there's just so much cracking golf in Ireland. It's it's hard to, it's it's hard to sort of put a thing. I played next door to, um, I played the Port Marnock Hotel golf course because uh-huh. that was part of our junket. Okay. And I I don't know how that rates, but I I quite enjoyed it. I know it's next door to the, it's Big Brother, but it's um, literally twelve minutes walk from where I'm sitting right now. Oh, there you go. The old course is about well, the old uh, sorry, I'm sorry the. Port Marnock links is from a walking perspective about 20 minutes and the old course is probably about 15 so uh, apparently when I come to Ireland I know someone who can get me on Port Marnock too yeah yeah 
Yeah, yeah, I, I have, I have <laughs> committed to that, and uh, I always keep my word, Mr. Jemison. I always keep my word. So we will be delighted to uh, to see you at some point and to roll out the red carpet and dust down the file of facts and uh, and sort things out. You know, come here. Uh, thank you for those uh, bucket list recommendations. Uh, last but by no means least, if one was going to suggest to listeners two books they should add to their library of a golfing nature, what would those books be? Um, well, that's good. If you're interested in um, one I'm really enjoying at the moment is Toby Cummings' book um, on Vern Morecambe. So Vern Morecambe, son of Mick Morecambe, who was the curator at Royal Melbourne. And um, Vern was 18 when Mackenzie came out and routed Royal Melbourne and Vern and, his, Vern and his father, Mick, built Royal Melbourne to Mackenzie's plans. And then Vern went on and did Mackenzie's bunkering at Kingston Heath and became the superintendent there or curator, they would have called it back in the day. And was a course architect on the weekend and designed 80 golf courses around, um, around Victoria and South Australia. So there's a whole lot of country gem golf courses here, but for those reading the uh, Toby Cummings book on Vern Morecambe, you'll find it easy enough. It's a great read because it has excerpts of the spirit of St Andrews in there because Mackenzie was such a big influence. So that is certainly one that I like, or I love would be good. And then of an instruction basis, Ernest Jones swing the club head, which is a, uh, Ernest Jones was a, um, was a UK pro who moved to America. He'd lost a leg in the war. And um, he, you can, his coaching really is, um, he coached, the person he coached, coached Bobby Jones. And there's a whole lot of stuff in his coaching that goes all the way through to Jack Nicholas. And it's a very, it's a, it's a classic instruction book, but it's a great read. Sandy, it's been great to catch up with you and talk about the development and continued success of the One Club Project. Before we say goodbye, you might let people know where they can find out more information about One Club and how they might be able to make contact with you should they wish to do so. I shamelessly plugged it a few times, so... Yeah, do it Do it again, yeah, do it again. One, numeral one, club.golf. And everything's on there. My contact details are on there. You can watch uh, an interview with um, said Rod Murray earlier who... If you want to find out about One Club Golf, you can watch the very first lesson. It goes for about five minutes. You can just watch it and you see exactly what happens in the first lesson. Um, some would say I'm giving away the secret sauce, but uh, I want the more people to do it, the better. I'd love to see a One Club everywhere. So, yeah, feel free to get in contact. Mate, many thanks once again for your time. I'm really looking forward to hooking up with you when I'm next in Melbourne and indeed in terms of when you're next in Dublin. Until then, keep fighting the good fight and happy half set golfing. Cheers, mate. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.